0: CHAPTER nine of the reef. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Reef by Edith Wharton. CHAPTER nine. The light of the October afternoon lay on an old high roofed house, which enclosed in its long expanse of brick and yellowish stone the breadth of a grassy court filled with the shadow and sound of the limes. From the escutcheon piers at the entrance of the court, a level drive, also shaded by limes, extended to a white-barred gate, beyond which an equally level avenue of grass, cut through a wood, dwindled to a blue-green blur against the sky bank with still white slopes of cloud. In the court, halfway between her house and drive, a lady stood. She held a parasol above her head and looked now at the house-front with its double flight of steps meeting before a glazed door unto sculptured trophies now down at the drive toward the grassy cutting through the wood her air was less of expectancy than of contemplation she seemed not so much to be watching for anyone one or listening for an approaching sound as letting the whole aspect of the place sink into her while she held herself open to its influence yet it was no less apparent that the scene was not new to her there was no eagerness of investigation in her survey she seemed rather to be looking about her with eyes to which for some intimate inward reason details long since familiar had suddenly acquired an unwanted freshness this was in fact the exact sensation of which mrs leith was conscious as she came forth from the house and descended into the sunlit court she had come to meet her stepson who was likely to be returning at that hour from an afternoon shooting in one of the more distant plantations and she carried in her hand the letter which had sent her in search of him but with her first step out of the house all thought of him had been effaced by another series of impressions the scene about her was known to satiety she had seen gifre at all seasons of the year and for the greater part of every year since the far-off day of her marriage the day when ostensibly driving through its gates at her husband's side she had actually been carried there on a cloud of iris-winged visions the possibilities which the place had then represented were still vividly present to her. The mere phrase of French chateau had called up to her youthful fancy a throng of romantic associations, poetic, pictorial, and emotional, and the serene face of the old house seated in its park among the poplar bordered meadows of middle France had seemed, on the first sight of it, to hold out to her a fate as noble and dignified as its own mien. Though she could still call up that phase of feeling, it had long since passed, and the house had for a time become to her the very symbol of narrowness and monotony. Then, with the passing of years, it had gradually acquired a less inimical character, had become not again a castle of dreams, evoker of fair images and romantic legend, but the shell of a life slowly adjusted to its dwelling, the place one came back to, the place where one had one's duties, one's habits and one's books, the place one would naturally live in till one died, a dull house an inconvenient house, of which one knew all the defects, the shabbinesses, the discomforts, but to which one was so used that one could hardly, after so long a time, think oneself away from it, without suffering a certain loss of identity. Now, as it lay before her in the autumn mildness, its mistress was surprised at her own insensibility. She had been trying to see the house through the eyes of an old friend, who, the next morning, would be driving up to it for the first time and in so doing she seemed to be opening her own eyes upon it after a long interval of blindness the court was very still yet full of latent life the wheeling and rustling of pigeons about the rectangular yews and across the sunny gravel the sweep of rooks above the lustrous grayish-purple slates of the roof and the stir of the tree-tops as they met the breeze which every day at that hour came punctually up from the river just such latent animation glowed in anna leith in every nerve and vein she was conscious of that equipoise of bliss which the fearful human heart scarce dares acknowledge she was not used to strong or full emotions but she had always known that she should not be afraid of them she was not afraid now but she felt a deep inward stillness the immediate effect of the feeling had been to send her forth in question of her stepson she wanted to stroll back with him and have a quiet talk before they re-entered the house it was always easy to talk to him and at this moment he was the one person to whom she could have spoken without fear of disturbing her inner stillness. She was glad, for all sorts of reasons, that Madame de Chantel and Effie were still at Oshie with the governess, and that she and Owen had the house to themselves. And she was glad that even he was not yet in sight. She wanted to be alone a little longer, not to think, but to let the long, slow waves of joy break over her one by one. She walked out of the court and sat down on one of the benches that bordered the drive. From her seat she had a diagonal view of the long house-front and of the domed chapel terminating one of the wings. Beyond a gate in the courtyard wall the flower-garden drew its dark green squares and raised its statues against the yellowing background of the park. In the borders only a few late pinks and crimsons smouldered, but a peacock strutting in the sun seemed to have gathered into his outspread fan all the summer glories of the place. In Mrs. Leet's hand was a letter which had opened her eyes to these things— and a smile rose to her lips at the mere feeling of the paper between her fingers. The thrill it sent through her gave a keener edge to every sense. She felt, saw, breathed the shining world as though a thin impenetrable veil had suddenly been removed from it. Just such a veil, she now perceived, had always hung between herself and life. It had been like the stage gauze which gives an elusive air of reality to the painted scene behind it. It proves it, after all, to be no more than a painted scene. She had been hardly aware, in her girlhood, of differing from others in this respect. In the well-regulated, well-fed summer's world, the unusual was regarded as either immoral or ill-bred, and people with emotions were not visited, sometimes with a sense of groping in a topsy-turvy universe. Anna had wondered why everybody about her seemed to ignore all the passions and sensations which formed the stuff of great poetry and memorable action in a community composed entirely of people like her parents and her parents' friends, she did not see how the magnificent things one read about could ever have happened. She was sure that if anything of the kind had occurred in her immediate circle, her mother would have consulted the family clergyman, and her father perhaps even rung up the police, and her sense of humour compelled her to own that, in the given conditions, these precautions might not have been unjustified. Little by little the conditions conquered her, and she learned to regard the substance of life as a mere canvas for the embroideries of poet and painter, and its little-swept and fenced intended and surface as its actual substance. It was in the visioned region of action and emotion that her fullest hours were spent, but it hardly occurred to her that they might be translated into experience, or connected with anything likely to happen to a young lady living in West 55th Street. She perceived, indeed, that other girls, leaning outwardly the same life as herself, and seemingly unaware of the world of hidden beauty, were yet possessed of some vital secret which escaped her. There seemed to be a kind of freemasonry between them. They were wider awake than she, more alert and sure of their wants, if not of their opinions. She supposed they were cleverer, and accepted her inferiority good-humouredly, half aware within herself of a reserve of unused power which the others gave no sign of possessing. This partly consoled her for missing so much of what made their good time but the resulting sense of exclusion, of being somehow laughingly but firmly debarred from a share of their privileges, threw her back on herself, and deepened the reserve which made envious mothers cite her as a model of ladylike repression. Love, she told herself, would one day release her from this spell of unreality. She was persuaded that the sublime passion was the key to the enigma, but it was difficult to relate her conception of love to the forms it wore in her experience two or three of the girls she had envied for their superior acquaintance with the arts of life had contracted in the course of time what were variously described as romantic or foolish marriages one even made a runaway match and languished for a while under a cloud of social reprobation here then was passion in action romance converted to reality yet the heroines of these exploits returned from them untransfigured and their husbands were dull as ever when one had to sit next to them at dinner Her own case, of course, would be different. Some day she would find the magic bridge between West 55th Street and life. Once or twice she had even fancied that the clue was in her hand. The first time was when she had met young Darrow. She recalled even now the stir of the encounter. But his passion swept over her like a wind that shakes the roof of the forest, without reaching its still glades or rippling its hidden pools. He was extraordinarily intelligent and agreeable, and her heart beat faster when he was with her he had a tall fair easy presence and a mind in which the lights of irony played pleasantly through the shades of feeling she liked to hear his voice almost as much to listen to what he was saying and to listen to what he was saying almost as much as to feel that he was looking at her but he wanted to kiss her and she wanted to talk to him about books and pictures and have him insinuate the eternal theme of their love into every subject they discussed whenever they were apart a reaction set in she wondered how she could have been so cold called herself a prude and an idiot, question if any man could really care for her, and got up in the dead of night to try new ways of doing her hair. But as soon as he reappeared, her head straightened itself on her slim neck, and she sped her little shafts of irony, or flew her little kites of erudition, while hot and cold waves swept over her, and the things she really wanted to say choked in her throat and burned the palms of her hands often she told herself that any silly girl who had waltzed through a season would know better than she how to attract a man and hold him. but when she said a man she did not really mean george darrow then one day at dinner she saw him sitting next to one of the silly girls in question the heroine of the elopement which had shaken west fifty-fifth street to its base the young lady had come back from her adventure no less silly than when she went and across the table the partner of her flight a fat young man with eyeglasses sat stolidly eating terrapin and talking about polo and investments. The young woman was undoubtedly silly as ever, yet after watching her for a few minutes Miss Summers perceived that she had somehow grown luminous, perilous, obscurely menacing to nice girls and the young men they intended eventually to accept. Suddenly, at the sight, a rage of possessorship awoke in her. She must save Darrow, assert her right to him at any price. Pride and reticence went down in a hurricane of jealousy. She heard him laugh, and there was something new in his laugh. She watched him talking, talking. He sat slightly sideways, a faint smile beneath his lids, lowering his voice as he lowered it when he talked to her. She caught the same inflections, but his eyes were different. He would have offended her once if he had looked at her like that. Now her one thought was that none but she had a right to be so looked at. And that girl of all others— What illusions could he have but a girl who, hardly a year ago, had made a fool of herself over the fat young man stolidly eating terrapin across the table? If that was where romance and passion ended, it was better to take to district visiting or algebra. All night she lay awake and wondered, What was she saying to him? How shall I learn to say such things? And she decided that her heart would tell her that the next time they were alone together the irresistible word would spring to her lips. He came the next day, and they were alone, and all she found was, I didn't know that you and Kitty Maine were such friends. He answered with indifference that he didn't know it either, and in the reaction of relief she declared, She's certainly ever so much prettier than she was. She's rather good fun, he admitted, as though he had not noticed her other advantages, and suddenly Anna saw in his eyes the look she had seen there the previous evening. She felt as if he were leagues and leagues away from her. All her hopes dissolved, and she was conscious of sitting rigidly, with high head and straight lips, while the irresistible word fled, with a last wing-beat, into the golden mist of her illusions. She was still quivering with the pain and bewilderment of this adventure when Fraser Leith appeared. She met him first in Italy, where she was travelling with her parents, and the following winter he came to New York. In Italy he had seemed interesting, in New York he became remarkable. He seldom spoke of his life in Europe, and let drop but the most incidental allusion to the friends, the tastes, the pursuits which filled his cosmopolitan days, but in the atmosphere of West 55th Street he seemed the embodiment of a storied past. He presented Miss Summers with a prettily bound anthology of the old French poets, and when she showed a discriminating pleasure in the gift, observed with his grave smile, I didn't suppose I should find anyone here who would feel about these things as I do. On another occasion he asked her acceptance of a half-effaced 18th-century pastel, which he had surprisingly picked up in a New York auction-room. "'I know no one but you who would really appreciate it,' he explained. He permitted himself no other comments, but these conveyed with sufficient directness that he thought her worthy of a different setting. That she should be so regarded by a man living in an atmosphere of art and beauty, and esteeming them the vital elements of life, made her feel for the first time she was understood. Here was someone whose scale of values was the same as hers, and who thought her opinion worth hearing on the very matters which they both considered of supreme importance. The discovery restored her self-confidence, and she revealed herself to Mr. Leith, that she had never known how to reveal herself to Darrow. As the courtship progressed, and they grew more confidential, her suitors surprised and delighted her by little explosions of revolutionary sentiment. He said, "'Shall you mind, I wonder?' "'if I tell you that you live in a dreadfully conventional atmosphere. "'In seeing that she manifestly did not mind, "'of course I shall say things now, "'and then that will horrify your dear delightful parents. "'I shall shock them awfully, I warn you.' "'In confirmation of this warning, "'he permitted himself an occasional playful fling "'at the regular church-going of Mr. and Mrs. Summers, "'at the innocuous character of the literature in their library, "'and at their guileless appreciations in art.' He even ventured to banter Mrs. Summers on her refusal to receive the irrepressible Kitty Maine, who, after a rapid passage with George Darrow, was now involved in another and more flagrant adventure. "'In Europe, you know, the husband is regarded as the only judge in such matters. As long as he accepts the situation—' Mr. Leith explained to Anna, who took his view the more emphatically in order to convince herself that, personally, she had none but the most tolerant sentiment toward the lady the subversiveness of mr leath's opinions was enhanced by the distinction of his appearance and the reserve of his manners he was like the anarchist with a gardenia in his buttonhole, who figures in the higher melodrama every word every allusion every note of his agreeably modulated voice gave anna a glimpse of a society at once freer and finer which observed the traditional forms but had discarded the underlying prejudices whereas the world she knew had discarded many of the forms and kept almost all the prejudices in such an atmosphere as this an eager young woman curious as to all the manifestations of life yet instinctively desiring that they should come to her in terms of beauty and fine feeling must surely find the largest scope for self-expression study travel the contact of the world the comradeship of a polished and enlightened mind would combine to enrich her days and form her character and it was only in the rare moments when mr leath's symmetrical blond mask went over hers and his kiss dropped on her like a cold smooth pebble that she questioned the completeness of the joys he offered there had been a time when the walls on which her gaze now rested had shed a glare of irony on these early dreams in the first years of her marriage the sober symmetry of givre had suggested only her husband's neatly balanced mind it was a mind she soon learned contentedly absorbed in formulating the conventions of the unconventional west 55th street was no more conscientiously concerned than Jeeves with the momentous question of what people did it was only the type of deed investigated that was different mr leith collected his social instances with the same seriousness and patience as his snuff boxes he exacted a rigid conformity to his rules of nonconformity and his skepticism had the absolute accent of a dogma he even cherished certain exceptions to his rules as the book collector prizes a defective first edition the Protestant church going of Anna's parents had provoked his gentle sarcasm, but he prided himself on his mother's devoutness, because Madame de Chantelle, in embracing her second husband's creed, had become part of a society which still observes the outward rites of piety. Anna, in fact, had discovered in her amiable and elegant mother in law an unexpected embodiment of the West Fifty fifth Street ideal. mrs Summers and Madame de Chantelle, however strongly they would have disagreed as to the authorized source of Christian dogma, would have found themselves completely in accord on all the momentous minutiae of drawing-room conduct yet mr leath treated his mother's foibles with a respect which anna's experience of him forbade her to attribute wholly to filial affection in the early days when she was still questioning the sphinx instead of trying to find an answer to it she ventured to tax her husband with his inconsistency you say your mother won't like it if i call on that amusing little woman who came here the other day and was let in by mistake but Madame de Chantel tells me she lives with her husband, and when mother refused to visit Kitty Mayne, you said, Mr. Lee's smile arrested her. My dear child, I don't pretend to apply the principles of logic to my poor mother's prejudices. But if you admit they are prejudices, there are prejudices and prejudices. My mother, of course, got hers from Monsieur de Chantel, and they seem to me as much in their place in this house as the potpourri in your hawthorn jar. They preserve a social tradition of which I should be sorry to lose the least perfume. Of course I don't expect you, just at first, to feel the difference, to see the nuance. In the case of little Madame de Virville, for example, you point out that she's still under her husband's roof. Very true. And if she were merely a Paris acquaintance, especially if you had met her, as one still might, in the right kind of house in Paris, I should be the last to object to your visiting her. But in the country it's different. Even the best provincial society is what you would call narrow. I don't deny it. And if some of our friends met Madame de Virville give well it would produce a bad impression you are inclined to ridicule such considerations but gradually you will come to see their importance and meanwhile do trust me when i ask you to be guided by my mother it is always well for a stranger in an old society to err a little on the side of what you call its prejudices but i should rather describe as its traditions after that she no longer tried to laugh or argue her husband out of his convictions they were convictions and therefore unassailable nor was any insincerity implied in the fact that they sometimes seemed to coincide with hers there were occasions when he really did look at things as she did but for reasons so different as to make the distance between them all the greater life to mr leath was like a walk through a carefully classified museum where in moments of doubt one had only to look at the number and refer to one's catalogue to his wife it was like groping about in a huge dark lumber-room where the exploring ray of curiosity lit up now some shape of breathing beauty and now mummy's grin. In the first bewilderment of her new state, these discoveries had the effect of dropping another layer of gauze between herself and reality. She seemed farther than ever removed from the strong joys and pangs for which she felt herself made. She did not adopt her husband's views, but insensibly she began to live his life. She tried to throw a compensating ardour into the secret excursions of her spirit, and thus the old vicious distinction between romance and reality was re established for her and she resigned herself again to the belief that real life was neither real nor alive. The birth of a little girl swept away this delusion. At last she felt herself in contact with the actual business of living, but even this impression was not enduring. Everything but the irreducible crude fact of childbearing assumed, in the Leith household, the same ghostly tinge of unreality. Her husband, at the time, was all that his own ideal of a husband required. He was attentive, and even suitably moved, but as he sat by her bedside and thoughtfully proffered to her the list of people who had called to inquire, she looked first at him and then at the child between them, and wondered at the blundering alchemy of nature. With the exception of the little girl herself, everything connected with that time had grown curiously remote and unimportant. The days that had moved so slowly as they passed seemed now to have plunged down headlong steeps of time. And as she sat in the autumn sun, with the Darrow's letter in her hand, the history of Anna Leith appeared to its heroine like some grey shadowy tale that she might have read in an old book one night as she was falling asleep. End of chapter 9